And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Thank you, Liza. Church, you may be seated. Um, and if you haven't already, Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 through 24 will be our primary text. Matthew, first book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you hit one of those others, go back to the left. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 through 24. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Um, and Jesus is in the middle of... Uh, detailing three different spiritual practices. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, these three chapters uh, in Matthew, also recorded in a shorter way in Luke's Gospel. Uh, and we've been, we looked at giving, we looked at praying, and today we're going to talk about, about fasting, something that perhaps many of us are quite unfamiliar with, and perhaps as many of us as are familiar with it, we'd like to be less familiar uh, with it. It's a challenging subject to, to consider. And see, through each of these different pericopes, Jesus is, though, I think, exposing the very same idea over and over again in three different vignettes or three different uh, disciplines. And what he's really cautioning his disciples about, whom followed him up on this hillside as he taught them sort of the way of the kingdom, uh, the way of his kingdom, his uh, rule and reign, the culture he was creating, if you will, he was addressing hypocrisy. He was addressing what it is and the temptation for many of us, including his first century followers, to pretend. And I think we all, we all get this. Many of us have been in religious spaces, and perhaps you're in one this very moment, where you feel as though you have this inclination that you have to put on a show, and that you have to show up in a particular kind of way so that things go well, or so that you are accepted, or so that, that the Lord would somehow be duped into accepting you into his family despite what happened late Saturday night, right? So we have all these different reasons and logics and cultures that sort of inform the same idea. That's hypocrisy. That's what Jesus uh, is addressing. He's addressing pretending. He's, he's addressing spiritual pretending. And through giving and prayer and fasting, Though these things can be deeply formative and truly helpful in our own spiritual formation, Jesus is saying these also come with massive temptations. Massive temptations, instead of glorifying him through our giving, through our praying, and through our fasting, is to seeking glory for ourselves. Something to gain approval from other people or to impress God. Or Jesus puts it this way, to be praised and seen by others. To be praised and seen by others. And so Jesus' instruction for his disciples has been uh, perhaps a bit counterintuitive for some of us. It's to seek discretion. 
It's to go into secret places or solitude to demonstrate, if you will, sort of your spiritual formation or to trust your spiritual formation, Jesus says, to your Father who what? Sees in secret, who is in secret. Go to the one into a place where uh, you remove that temptation, as it were, and you're able to simply be with the Father. Now, Jesus is not favoring private devotion over public displays of faith, right? Rather, what he's doing is he's, I think, I think he's attempting to bring healing to things that lead to living hypocritical lives, because, you know, hypocrisy isn't the issue. It's the issue underneath the issue that he's addressing. Uh, Not only so, but I think he's healing wounds caused by hypocrisy, because I think both of those things are true in the church and in many of our lives. There, There are wounds that are leading me to live a hypocritical life, and there are ways I've been affected by someone else's pretending that I'm learning to reconcile or get over or or grow through. And I think Jesus is addressing both of those things. He's addressing the proclivity that we have in religious contexts to put on a show. And he does that through these different things. And today, he's going to do that not just simply in religious contexts, but he's also going to caution his disciples about secular allures of materialism. We love our stuff. So there's not just a temptation with our spiritual formation. There's a temptation with very carnal, physical, visible, material things. And Jesus addresses those things too. See, Jesus, I think, is is safeguarding us and his first disciples from two extremes. He doesn't want you to base your identity on your religious performance. That's the moral temptation. But he also doesn't want you to believe that your life is defined by earthly pleasures. That's the secular temptation. And so depending on your upbringing, your context, we live in a city like Chicago, that means there's probably both kinds of people, not only in this room, but there's both kinds of people in my heart. There's some kind of context where I'm like, look at me, how much I love Jesus. And in other contexts, I'm like, look what I have. Look how great these things are. And so the heart even plays tricks on us. Sometimes I'm more tempted morally and other times in a much more modern sense. See, fasting then is this wonderful discipline that the Lord is giving the church in order for us to learn or to even teach our hearts, to shape our spiritual imagination as it were, to detach us from loving things too much and loving the pleasure of the crowd too much. Seeking the attention of others and I think drawing close to stuff in a way that it cannot satisfy. So to make this connection, Jesus employs this wonderful word, which is best left untranslated, in the ESV or the English Standard or the uh, NIV, which perhaps many of you have. The word is translated, decided they couldn't translate it, so they left it simply as mammon. Mammon. So maybe your translation says that, maybe your translation says money, but I think it's best to understand Jesus, by the way, the only four times it shows up in the New Testament, Jesus has them all four times. So this is something he's trying to communicate to his disciples, the importance of this. And while mammon is not strictly a negative term, Jesus does something wild with this word in this context. He gives it a, a personality. That's terrifying. That's terrifying when money, possessions, power, Jesus begins to speak about it as if it has a power all on its own, as if it has a personality. So many scholars then believe that using mammon like this, like a proper name, what Jesus is really doing, what he has in mind, is not just an idea but a demonic power. Now that gets my intention as a secular modern person. Like demonic power sounds really extreme, but isn't it really interesting how the very same thing that 2,000 years ago was causing a ruckus in the ancient world, money, possessions, stuff, is still the very thing you and I face today. So may we simply on that fact concede that maybe more is going on than just money. Maybe more is going on than just some monetary note we exchange. Maybe something's wrapped around our hearts. 
And I think that's what Jesus is going to get at today, and that's what I'd like to talk about. I think his entire attention in these uh, couple of passages that we'll look at is given to mammon. And so I'd like to talk about mammon, and I want to talk about what it is and how we resist it. Here's how we'll organize our time. We'll look at fasting from mammon, understanding mammon, and ultimately we'll arrive at hating mammon, which I think will be our most fun part of the lesson today. Fasting from mammon, understanding mammon, and hating mammon. Let's ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, uh, left to ourselves, uh, we will pick up a really nice lesson today, maybe even something that feels really good to tweet, but ultimately our hearts could be unaffected. And so, Father, we pray against uh, that temptation uh, for something to sound really good to us, but to not take root in really good soil that springs forth into love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are the things of heaven that we desire to spring in our hearts and in our community and in our city, we pray today. Um, And so would you protect us from just the sentimentality? Um, Would you protect us just from learning intellectually today? And would you do what only you can by your spirit, which is to transform us on the spot? Would my sisters leave as different people? Would my brothers leave as different people who have been through the cross of Christ, through the power of your word and spirit, be made more like your son. That's an incredible power that you possess, and so we want to be submissive to it today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So throughout history, whether we like it or not, our spiritual family has been really committed to fasting, really committed for many different reasons, to taking a break from food and from water and from other uh, pleasures, if you will, of this world. It's always been part of who we are. It's a way that the Lord instituted long ago about learning to deny ourselves because our bodies are not satisfy an urge and still be you. You can still be whole. You can still be happy. You can still be righteous and say no to certain longings. So we see it in the life of Nehemiah. We see it in the life of Jonah and Esther and Daniel and the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself, who perhaps most famously for 40 days and 40 nights contends with Satan himself without food or water, and goes to blows with him for our sake, in many respects denying himself what his own physical body needed to show that he didn't need it, that he ultimately needed to trust the Lord. And so the early church did this, and we are meant to continue on, I think, this spiritual legacy. Food and water, other material things, these are not bad. There have been a lot of course corrections through history where people say, look, God is instructing the church to not partake in these things all the time, that means that they're bad. And so what began to happen in Jesus' context, though the Old Testament only gave one day for fasting throughout the entire year, a lot of religious people were like, you know what? We want to show how incredible devoted, incredibly devoted we are. We're going to do this twice a week. We're going to do this all the time. Um, this is what we've been doing all the time, right, in different religious circles. You think God had a high standard? We've got a higher one, right? At this church, this is the real deal. And so we not only do what God says, but we said some things too that you need to do. That is a bad idea. It goes really poorly. And that's what I think Jesus begins to address today. See, in his sermon, Jesus doesn't directly address or rather command fasting. He presumes that his disciples are going to do this. He presumes that his disciples are going to do this. And so he addresses then not the how, really, but about the attitude and the disposition of our souls. And here's what he says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 through 18. It says, when you fast, see the presumption? When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, 
Anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus speaks this way. Again, as this idea is emerging, uh, which is foreign from the Bible, about taking multiple breaks a week from food, he wants his disciples to understand the truth underneath that cultural um, tendency. So Jesus doesn't expect, does expect his disciples to take breaks from food and to take breaks from water and otherworldly distractions as a practice of worship. However, like fasting, or rather like giving and like um, praying, fasting comes with these temptations. There were those in religious class who said, Jesus says what? Disfigured their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. In other words, they walked out disheveled. They wanted people to ask them questions like, yo, what happened to you? Like, don't bother me, I'm fasting today, right? They wanted to invite that question, right? Perhaps you've done that in other ways. You walk around tired, waiting for someone to go, are you okay? Yeah, I'm just exhausted, man, it's crazy. And then you just take the opportunity. That's exactly what they did. This is deeply ironic, though. And ultimately what Jesus is saying is it's hypocritical. Why? Because in abstaining from worldly things, they're actually seeking worldly praise. There's the hypocrisy. Look at all the worldly things I'm shunning while underneath their heart, they're trying to gain accolades of this world. They're acting like they are denying themselves when in actuality, they're hoarding glory for themselves. This is what Jesus is detesting. Today, we might call this virtue signaling, right? Someone who is doing something not because it represents their heart, but but because they know it will garner praise or attention from their particular cul-de-sac of culture or from a particular person they're trying to win favor. See, Jesus, though, sees beyond the behavior. Don't you love that? That Jesus sees beyond, beyond the behavior. He sees underneath the behavior, and he begins to address the underlying condition, which is always the heart. It's always the heart. You see, as before, fasting isn't the problem. The heart is. It's the soul that needs healing. And through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is reframing righteousness around the heart. He invites his disciples then to reject this destructive and hollow practice of hypocrisy, which manifests in giving and praying and fasting. And he does so then by welcoming us, welcoming them into solitude and intimacy. Because you see, hypocrisy never enjoys something. Intimacy and communion. It's never drawing close to someone. Why? Because it's always removing self from others to demonstrate how powerful, wonderful, or good we are. And so he wants us to see fasting as a part of inward formation, a, a way of cultivating, nurturing intimacy with the Father, not about garnering praise from other people. Again, this is not a condemnation of public acts of faith. After all, we need to look no further than Jesus' very public death on the cross to know that is not what he is trying to condemn. Rather, Jesus is healing our wounds that have been caused by pretending. He's condemning the habit of fasting from food while at the very same moment feasting on mammon. Fasting from food, feasting from mammon, which, by the way, is exactly what mammon wants. Mammon wants us to act and even believe that we have denied its power when in actuality we are serving its purposes. It loves that. It loves that. See, remember, mammon is not a thing. Mammon is, not a, is, is a force, it's a power, it's a will, it's a false god. See, we don't even always realize, we don't even always know. I know I don't. We don't always know when we're pretending. I need someone like my wife to go, yo, who was it that showed up in that conversation because I didn't recognize him? Who was it that was preaching on Sunday because it didn't sound like you? It sounded like somebody else you were trying to be. 
Who was it that told that story? Because that's actually disconnected from reality, right? We need community. We need each other. We need healing. See, Jesus is saying we can convince ourselves, or perhaps more to the point, that mammon can convince us that we're abstaining from the very thing we're actually indulging in, that we're releasing power when really we're actually giving into it. See, we do this whenever we seek glory for something that is meant to bring glory to God. Whenever we seek to gain glory of something that is meant to glorify God, that is when we have been uh, ultimately given over to pretending. See, fasting from mammon is good and healthy, worshipful practice, and we should do it regularly. Some of us perhaps more often than we do as the Lord directs and guides us so that we would be freed from so many of the distractions of things like food and social media and alcohol and shopping and technology. All of these things have a way of disconnecting us, of fracturing our souls from who we really are if we give in to them too much. It detaches us from loving the world too much and seeing the world through its pleasures and not through our Creator. But we also have to do so appropriately. We have to do so without hypocrisy. So that's the question for us. How in the world do we do that? How do we fast properly? How do we fast when hypocrisy and when pretending is such a temptation? How do we make sure that mammon doesn't gaslight us as it's so susceptible and we are so susceptible and it is so good at doing? Well, Jesus continues by helping us understand what mammon is a little bit better, directing our attention to what we value and how we see. Look at verse 19. He says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." Jesus sort of between the lines is saying mammon is not a religious issue. Mammon is a human issue. So it's not just something that the church needs to contend with. A struggle for First Street Church in Chicago, Illinois. And so Jesus is not correcting the wrong impulses of moralistic culture only around things like fasting, but he's also correcting the errant practices of modern society and our relationship with our stuff, with our things. I wish it would just be one or the other, but he's like, no, both of these are corroding and corrupting your soul. I wish it was one just because it would be simpler, be easier. It's easy to swing the pendulum. It's a lot harder to trust the Lord in the middle of all of this. Theologian Marva Don wrote about mammon in an opening of her great books called Unfettered Hope. It's a book all about how do we live with faith in a world of, in, of, of affluence and of abundance. And she, in the very beginning of her book, addresses this idea of mammon. And she says that the treasures of this life tend to overstep their proper role. I think that's really helpful language that she addresses because what she's saying ultimately is that money and possessions, they make promises to us all the time, don't they? In different ways, they make promises to you that only God can keep. And this has been happening ever since modern society began to form this idea of money and possessions and things like this. And Jesus then delivers a timely lesson to all of us who love brands, who love bakeries that are local and have lines going out the door, right? Logan Square boasts of many of these things, and I boast of them as if I have opened them, right? He speaks directly to us who love clothes and love to make excuses about why those jeans just don't work anymore and why we need the the next one or the new one or another one. Those of us who love to remodel our houses when really it's just fine or really we're asking that home to give us something that it can't. 
He's speaking to us who love our restaurants and who read multiple articles about shoes, right? Even, I have no intention of buying these things, but I just want to know about them because even reading an article about that restaurant about to open up, it's almost like I can taste it. It's almost then like I get to be on the end and say, have you heard yet about this new thing? It's going to be great. I already know about it. What's he saying? He says, don't treasure those things. Now, he's not saying don't own these things. He's not saying don't enjoy these things. He's not even saying don't save up for the future. He's not demonizing the physical world. God made the physical world. He's saying don't trust the promises of mammon. Enjoy these things, but do not trust these things. Don't love them. Don't treasure them. Why? He gives us three reasons. Three reasons why we shouldn't, what he says, treasure earthly things. First, because they're corruptible. They're corruptible. Jesus says earthly treasures are vulnerable to earthly deterioration. In other words, whatever this world can give you, it can also take away. Whatever this world gives you, it can just as quickly take it away. Moths can eat it up. Rust can destroy it. Thieves can steal it. The genes that put you on the in crowd pretty soon are putting you on the out crowd. That train is never late, is it? Just ask my daughter. She constantly is coaching me up. Dad, it's been a half hour since I got this new thing. It's old now, right? It's even before moth and rust eat it up. Popularity does, right? Thieves break in and can steal it. Some of us have stories of things that we treasure just one second from the next being taken from us. So this is what Jesus is saying. Mammon is corruptible and it's losable, so don't trust it. Secondly, he says that earthly things... um, Rather, we shouldn't treasure earthly things because they feed on selfishness. Notice what Jesus says. Don't lay up, what? For yourselves. For yourselves. This is the one, like, right between the eyes. See, I very rarely lay up treasures so that I can bless my neighbor. I very rarely lay up treasures so I can give more away. I'm almost always laying these things up. I'm treasuring them because of what they give me. And even if I'm laying them up or treasuring them so I can bless my neighbor, it's really just about my reputation, right? So even when I'm giving away, I'm like, did you see that gift? Which takes us back to the first pericope that Jesus unfolds in Matthew chapter 6. Pastor John Stott explains, what Jesus forbids his followers is the selfish accumulation of goods. The foolish fantasy that a person's life consists in the abundance of his possessions and the materialism which teaches, or rather which tethers our hearts to the earth. Now what I would love, this would be so easy, is if the people with that problem are all on hoarders. Like that's who Jesus is talking about. The people who treasure possessions like that, who keep those things around them like that. But ultimately what he is helping us understand is you could have or not have things and still trust them. This this is about the disposition of our heart to collect and hold on to things. It's not about the quantity worshipfully in us. See, the wild thing is we can be greedy with or without money. We can love mammon with or without stuff. This is about the disposition of our hearts. That takes a lot more work. That takes a lot more community, a lot more surrender to the Holy Spirit. I wish we could just count things up and go, all right, you five, you're the ones who are really accumulating too many things, and y'all are good. What Jesus is saying is all of us need to check our hearts. This is why we can never judge anybody and point the finger and go, yo, did you hear what they got the other day? Man, they really must love mammon. I'm sure glad I didn't get that thing, right? We're doing the same thing. I'm doing the same thing, whether I'm collecting it or judging up somebody else for doing it. Because almost always when I judge someone for having something, it's just jealousy. It's not actually like a moral, like high ground. It's really pretty low ground. So mammon promotes selfishness is what Jesus says. Thirdly, he says, 
We shouldn't treasure earthly things because somehow what we treasure corrupts our hearts. This is what I think uh, takes a little bit more convincing for modern people because we almost always think we're very separate from our things. Uh, we always think that we have a lot of distance from our stuff. But what Jesus is saying is very, by the very nature of mammon, again, not a thing, not a commodity, but a power, a force, a demonic power even. He's saying, in other words, what we treasure shapes who we are. What we esteem affects us. Our poet William Blake, I think, said it best. He said, we become whatever we behold. We become what we behold. Remember, mammon is not a stagnant idea. It's a force. It's an agenda. It's a false god. It's what transforms us, not into the image of God, but into its image. Now, you might think that this is a little uh, overplaying the idea, but in 2011, when Jeep released its latest, its newest Grand Cherokee model, their slogan, do you know what their slogan was? The things we make, make us. This is a blatant statement of what Jesus is communicating here in 2011. It's still being recycled on YouTube and many of their different commercials. What we make, makes us. This is a terrifying admission. We're like, yeah, I know that mammon shapes me, but that actually could sell a Jeep, so let's go with it. Let's go with it. What we buy, what we believe, those things make us. What we wear, we believe, that makes us. What we eat, we believe, that makes us. Mammon then controls and corrupts. It gets down into our hearts, and it says, without this, you're nothing. Without this, you're actually not whole. You're not complete. That's mammon. So church, I hope that you see. This is why Jesus wants us to fast. Fast appropriately, because caught up in that current and never slowing down and just consuming one thing to the next begins to deceive and corrupt and hurt us. We fast out of worship. And trust through self-denial, we learn to put earthly things in their proper place by detaching ourselves from things like food or alcohol or social media or shopping for a period of time. We learn that our personhood is not dependent upon mammon. You know, this very week, we came back from vacation. Laura and I looked at each other and said, you know what? We just need to take a break from drinking. I don't think that any, we made a crazy foolish decision while we were on vacation, but vacation is just take a few days off. I don't need the Bible. I don't need to worship. I need a glass of orange wine. You know, that skin contact stuff that tastes really good, right? And that all kinds of hipsters rave about and that you can only find in these certain places. That's what I need. Why? Because that's who I think I am. I like that. I like telling that story. I don't like telling the story of like, you know what? I may have had too much of that and I need to make sure that I've checked before the Lord, that that's not who I am. That mammon doesn't control me, but Jesus does. And before you give me too much praise, it was my wife's idea, and she said that we needed to do it. So she was right again. (laughs) See, I think we learn in the middle of that the beauty that Jesus is telling us, that though these earthly things are corruptible, they're broken, and they corrupt us, heavenly things, they don't break down like that. The things that are true, like the image of God, it actually wasn't even in jeopardy when I took a break from mammon. When I took a break from a very simple thing, everything that was truest and most beautiful about who we were was intact. That taught our souls. So how do we know? How do we know if we're treasuring something too much? Well, one idea is just to take a break and see what happens, right? And if you refuse to take a break from it, that's a good indication. (laughs) That's a good indication that maybe... It's something that has your, your soul. But if it's a little bit more challenging, how do we know if what we are treasuring is corruptible and if it's corrupting us? This is what Jesus says next. He directs us to our sight, our eyes. Matthew 6, verse 22. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. 
So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So Jesus moves away from what we treasure, what we value, to what we see um, and how we see. In fact, he's comparing a person navigating life with sight, with light, with a person who navigates in blindness or in darkness. That's our short answer. How do we know if we're treasuring something that actually is corrupting or corrupting us or is corruptible? We need sight. We need spiritual vision. What mammon does is blind us. It blinds with pleasures of this life. So we keep wandering from thrill to thrill, purpose, or rather purchase to purchase, pleasure to pleasure, all the while avoiding God's commands. We just don't even want to stop and think about it. Right? That, that's, that's navigating the world with blindness. I don't want to see. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to think about it. I just want to put my head down and go to the next thing. Think about Netflix. In 2016, Netflix introduced the Play Next button. You notice this? It was wonderful for parents of young children all over the world. Why? Because I didn't need to come back in the room and play the next one and find it. It just did it automatically. Praise God. What a gift. What a gift to our young family. In fact, you, you, don't, you don't even need to click, you don't even need to make a decision. The next few minutes, the next Indian matchmaker would just start playing. It was wonderful. Right? The next Coco Melon, whatever it was, whatever is your thing. In 2021, they piloted the play something button. Have you seen this? This is wild. You don't even need to know what you want to watch. It will choose for you. The algorithm has learned your life. It will tell you what you will enjoy. Just go to the next thrill. The last thing that you should do is just sit there and think. You picking up on this? See, mammon is not just a thing. It's not just an idea. It's a force to power that takes hold that we never question and we just let keep going. Netflix is not evil. Some of my favorite people work for that company. They're wonderful people, right? What's the issue? My heart. I'd love to blame Netflix. I'd love to go culture war on that mug, right? And just say, this is bad and evil. That's not the problem. See, all kinds of broken things can persist if the heart is healing because it doesn't want them. It doesn't look for them. It doesn't grab them. Can you imagine if we taught our children not what they needed to do, but how they were loved and how their hearts were being shaped by a God who loved them? Then they would understand and see rightly. Can you imagine if we didn't just say, that's a bad thing, that's a good thing, that's a bad thing, that's a good thing, do that, don't do that, but instead we go, who am I? Where's my heart? Where's my center? Then all of a sudden I have sight and I can see. This is beautiful, this is beautiful passage in John's gospel, John chapter 9 and 10, where Jesus talks about we know the voice of the Father. Now we don't know the voice of the Father because we've heard every other Father's voice and we're able to discern which one is which and which, no, I know so intimately the Father's voice, I know when he's not talking. I know when he's not talking. I know the shepherd's voice. I know what Jesus sounds like. Why? Because I've been with him. See, hypocrisy doesn't have intimacy. And intimacy knows when hypocrisy shows up. That's not my father. That's not Jesus. Jesus wants his people to see. Why? So we can flourish. So we can flourish. Jesus wants his people to live in the light because it's only in the light where we surrender to the, to the spirit and his word and his people and we're able to discern if fasting is about our reputation or God's. It's only in the light where we're able to know, is that new pair of Air Max, is that covetousness? Or is that because I'm enjoying the good pleasure of a fruitful season of work and a wonderful shoe, right? How do I know? It's only in the light that we're able to understand, is that retirement plan a way of celebrating the fruitfulness of work that God has given me? Or is it a way of believing my security is about what I put away and about what I save and about my control? 
It's only in the light that we know, is it mammon? Is it corrupting? Is it corruptible? Or is it God's blessing? It's only in the light that we know where our heart truly resides. But what's the big deal, right? What's the big deal if we fast and somebody sees us and we get a little credit and we kind of enjoy it, right? Let's calm down. What if I buy too many shoes, right? What if I trust my 401k a little bit too much? What if I dabble in loving this world a little too much? What's the big deal? Jesus explains this in perhaps the strongest language he possibly could. He's so serious about fasting and treasuring heavenly things and living in the light that he describes mammon as an opposing deity or master. He calls it a false god. Look at verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Historically speaking, Jesus' statement isn't factually accurate. In other words, slaves could actually, in Jesus' day, be owned by multiple masters, but that's not really what he's getting at. What he's communicating is that the agenda of mammon and God are so diametrically opposed to one another that it's impossible, or even perhaps better, illogical to serve both. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of mammon are built, are building alternate realities with completely different values and materials and aspirations. So you serve one or you serve the other. You love one and you hate the other. They don't mix. Writer Andy Crouch, I think, has been really thoughtful about mammon from the Bible as well as in our modern world. He wrote this great book I'm still working through called The Life We're Looking For. Um, he lays out mammon in three, mammon's agendas in three different ways, all with this language about what, what it separates. So in, in other words, mammon is separating things that God has intended to belong together or to be together. He's created them to be together. Um, and I think they're really helpful in our understanding about why we should hate it so much. So the first, he says, mammon wants to separate power from relationships. It wants to say that you can have power without the need for relationships. Think about how money and the right app allow you to get anything done without a friend. How many times, in fact, is that the problem that the app is trying to solve? You know, for years, how hard it was to call your friend, right, to move, and how much they hated you, and that pizza was not enough to compensate and to heal that wound that you betrayed the friendship so much. They didn't even have a truck, right? An app says, steps in and goes, we got this. You don't need to talk to these people. In fact, you can tip them without even talking to them, right? You don't, get to, you don't need to know them. To be sure, you may exchange pleasantries, but you don't need relationship with them. See, before that app or without that money, we used to rely on community. Getting groceries when you're sick, now we got an app for that. You don't need to call your small group. You can figure it out. Moving your belongings across the country, got an app for that. You need a ride from the airport, right? This is perhaps the place that Mammon has slid in the most joyfully resounding amen from many people, right? We don't got to go to the airport anymore. And just call some stranger, have them take me home. It's really clean. I've got power and no relationship. Now, apps are not inherently evil. We always have to be clear about this. It's my relationship with my stuff. And it's my disconnect from people that I think Jesus is calling into question here. See, because they've stolen something from us. They're wooing us to believe we're powerful on our own and can live without vulnerability of other, with other people. I don't have to admit a need to get a need met. Think about that. Think about what that does to our souls, that I can heal myself if I have the right money and the right technology. I don't need to rely on people. That is not how you have been made. That is not how I have been made. And that's exactly what mammon wants. 
separates power and relationships. Secondly, mammon wants to separate abundance from dependency. It's related to the first. Crouch explains, the more we enter into the money economy, the less personal our world becomes. On my porch, I'm even awkward about talking to people in the moment that they had by walking down the sidewalk. There's something even awkward about talking to people in public because got, we got the headphones in, right? I'm like, literally, I'm in my space. I don't need any connection. See, think about when you were a baby, when you were a kid. You were utterly dependent on other people, and for many reasons, perhaps, but one for sure is you didn't have any money, you didn't have any possessions. You had to be dependent. You had to be completely relying on other people. Now, what many of us only knew in infancy, the poor and the homeless know every single day. The poor and the marginalized know just about every single day in ways that wealth sort of uh, inculcates, protects us from needing to depend on other people. A lack of abundance demonstrates how dependent we need to become. Or in fact, perhaps better, how dependent we actually are. There's something that shields us even from ourselves. Think about your retirement accounts. Whether you have them or not, it actually doesn't matter. These are marketed to us that we can trust that the abundance of money and resource will protect us from the unexpected, from being dependent, especially on your kids. There are commercials that says, don't depend on your children. Make sure your 401k is ready. What? Don't depend on your family. Don't depend on your community. What Depend on what? Mammon. Put enough money away and your family will stay together. Or perhaps the real issue in my family is we don't want to depend on each other. See, it's a lot harder to address that, isn't it? I'm not saying that everybody's children and family life is all perfect and you can definitely depend on each other. I'm saying the issue underneath the issue is our infatuation with money, mammon, things. See, retirement accounts aren't evil. Savings for the long haul is not wrong, but they are not your hope, and that's exactly what mammon wants you to think. Lastly, thirdly, mammon wants to separate being from personhood. So it's not only separating our power from relationships and our abundance from dependency, but also, Crouch says, separating being from personhood. See, mammon doesn't see persons. Doesn't see persons. Mammon promises only to fulfill fleshly cravings, which in turn belittles persons into beings detached from personhood. Now, Crouch defines personhood in his book based on Deuteronomy 6.5, a heart-soul-mind-strength complex designed for love. When was the last time an, an app saw the fullness of that kind of being, that kind of person? Heart, soul, mind, strength. We almost always ask, can we do it, not should we do it? Is this good for us? No, are we capable and able to do it? Then we absolutely should. See, Mammon sees people as a flesh bag of urges, urges and vows that it will satisfy, will give meaning and enjoyment until the next update, Right? You see some of these tech updates, they even like throw shade on the last iteration of their thing like it was all a lie. You haven't taken a clear picture until this, this moment, until this new camera, until this new download, until this new thing. You got to get this thing. This is, are you up on that, right? I mean, good night, help us. See, when we know we bear the holy image, when we get close to that, when we know we are the ones for whom Christ died, we can resist anything that minimizes our humanity or the humanity of our neighbor. We bump all of that. 
It's not a problem with an app. It's not a problem with the money. It's a problem with our souls loving something that cannot fulfill its own promises. See, mammon is consistently then breaking down the image of God that is imprinted on every person. Therefore, Jesus does not simply tell us to fast from food and water regularly to cultivate a grateful heart. That's not ultimately the point. Nor does he tell us to disdain the material world. What's he say? Rather, he says, to resist the allure to love and trust and serve mammon, the force that seeks to destroy you, not make you whole. You should hate mammon, especially in comparison to your relationship with the Lord. Why? Because it's an attempt to separate power from relationships, abundance from dependency, and being with personhood. It's telling us ultimately one thing. You can be your own God. We got you. We can satisfy that with all of this. And trying to be your own God, trying to be my own God, is not only a violation against our humanity. What Jesus is saying is it's dangerous and idolatrous. It breaks down our humanity, but it also rejects the God of the Bible. This is why Jesus is teaching us that this will heal you. This will bring wholeness. It's healing us from the wounds of hypocrisy, both that we have caused and that we are proliferating. Through, through his death then, What's beautiful about the death of Jesus is Jesus rejoins what mammon has separated. Jesus brings back together in you and in society what mammon has separated. You see, the one who was independently powerful, Jesus Christ, initiated relationship with his creation. In other words, the one who has everything that it seems like we're chasing after, bumps all of that, did not see equality with God, a thing to be held on to, Philippians 2 tells us, but made himself nothing, become, taking on the form of humanity, even the form of a servant, died in our place and for our sins. So the one who was powerful without relationship engaged us, why? For relationship. Not only that, but the one who dwelled in eternal abundance became a dependent human being within an interconnected family and community. Jesus willingly stepped into a human family. Think about it. Many of us have spent our entire life trying to break up with our families. And here's the Son of God stepping into an interconnected family, interdependent family on purpose. The one who was a being unto himself, became a human person built for relationship. He was and is, Colossians 1 tells us, the image of the invisible God. He does not just bear the image, he is the image. See, so therefore, in Christ, then the wounds of mammon, what, what mammon has ripped apart, are healed, are brought back together. In Christ, the power of mammon is destroyed. In Christ, the force of mammon can be resisted. How? Through love. Through his love. See, by getting our loves in order, when we love God and not stuff, when we worship God and not technology, when we trust God and not out of devotion, I'm good without you. I'm whole without you. You are nice, but you are not my Savior. See, the more we follow the Lord, the less we'll crave mammon. The closer, the more we worship the Lord, the less we trust mammon. And church, the more you love the Lord, the more you're going to hate mammon. So let's pray that. Heavenly Father, as St. Augustine said, often our loves are disordered. They're out of sync. We've believed the promises of the gods of this world. We've believed that they could make us whole, they could help and heal, and even make us more human. But they cannot, they cannot deliver on those promises. Only you are the one who heals. Only you are the one who restores. And so we do ask for your forgiveness. Forgive us for, as Paul says in Romans 1, trusting creation rather than the creator God. 
And would you even reveal to us the ways that we do that? Because then we'll actually enjoy a good meal. We'll enjoy a generous retirement account. We'll, we'll enjoy the things that you have allowed us to create or you have created when they're put in their proper place. So would you heal us from the false ways that we are navigating the world, as Jesus said, blindly, without sight, without light? And would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might choose the right master, the right one to love you, our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.